Psalm 56. And then two questions and answers from Lord's Day 22. That's on page 29, the back of our blue hymnal. We'll read those answers together after we read God's word. Psalm 56. It's God's holy word. He gives it to his people for their good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Psalm 56, for the director of music to the tune of A Dove on Distant Oaks of David, a Tom, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? All day long they twist my words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, eager to take my life. On no account let them escape. In your anger, O God, bring down the nations. Record my lament. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, O God. I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. And then if you would go to page 29, the back of our hymnal, let's read these answers together for our catechism lesson for tonight. Lord's Day 22. Christian, how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but even my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no man has ever imagined a blessedness in which to praise God eternally.
say. Philosopher was pondering the reality of death and said these words, which in many ways capture really the, the angst that accompanies the realization that amidst all the questions and, and all of the really good and bad things about human life, that really it ends the same way for all. He said this, This is the terror. To have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression, and with all this, yet to die. It seems like a hoax. What kind of deity would create such complex and fancy worm food? There you have really encapsulated in in a couple sentences the, the problem if you do not have an answer for death. So if you do not have an answer for death, then you have no answer for the meaning of life. What does it all mean if it sort of ends at the same place with no answer for beyond the horizon of this life? Uh, The despair of this kind of feeling has left many searching frantically for ways to escape death. I think last time we went through this Lord's Day, I mentioned that the famous television personality Larry King, who's known to have almost an obsessive fear with death, actually this past year had a stroke and was in a coma, has almost an obsessive fear of death, and he wanted to have his body frozen moments after he died, just in case there would be some kind of technology that would be developed to overcome death, and in case that's ever discovered. More recently, there is a field of study that some people have called longevity technology, which seeks to create certain kinds of technologies that uh, purport to be able to turn off genes in your body that produce things like cancer and illness and turn on genes in your body that promote health and healing. The idea here is that your body will be something like software programming. You're able to program your body and tweak it to achieve maximum lifespans. Some people who are really into this and they think it's going to be a great thing have said that children being born now could live to be 150 years old. And a couple generations after that, 200 years old might be a viable lifespan goal for them. One person who claims to have inside knowledge on these things claims that one day soon we will achieve what he calls escape velocity. Maybe you know what he means by that title, that one day they will be able to develop the technology so that your body will be able to repair itself equal to the rate of decay. And so in summing that up, he says there's a possibility that one day we will live indefinitely. And I came across that phrase a couple of times this week, thinking about these questions and researching it a little bit. We will live indefinitely. And it made me wonder, why does no one say, we will live eternally? Because no matter what kind of technological answers you have, no matter uh, what kind of advancements the human race can make, there really is 
no answer for what is always going to be the problems, the pain, the sinfulness, the way that human beings turn against one another, the way that we create problems for ourselves. See, in in this world, one of the scariest realities would be to live indefinitely. I love the way that the second question and answer of the catechism in tonight's lesson talks about the blessedness that goes hand in hand with eternal life. For the Christian, we, our hope is not that we will live indefinitely. And our hope is not that uh, we will be dependent upon some kind of technology to advance. No, our hope is that we will live eternally in the blessedness that God gives to us in his son. You can be skeptical about all of these things that people say with these technologies. Uh, None of our bodies have been subjected to any of these things. And so no matter how hopeful people want to be, we need to make sure that uh, we understand, that we know that God's word speaks to these issues. And where is our hope going to be? Living indefinitely? Possibly? Probably not. Or living forever in blessedness with God in Christ. You see, in God and in Christ, we already possess that eternal life. Living by the Spirit, being given the Spirit, we already hold not only the guarantee of eternal life, but a very reality of eternal life that wells up inside of us. And this gives us freedom to live for God and for others, not jealously guarding each breath that we have, but using it for God's glory using it for his kingdom. We'll think about those things tonight, using this wonderful little psalm, Psalm 56, a psalm of David. Here's the first main idea. Living with eternal life, which is what we have, living with eternal life in the midst of death means to have a tension between uh, deep complaint and assurance. There's tension between deep complaint and assurance. You see that in the way that David uh, gives his petitions to God in this psalm, but also the way that he trusts and finds assurance. As we read the introduction to this psalm, we, said, we, we saw that this is when David was seized in Gath. In order to get that story, you go to 1 Samuel chapter 21. So here's the, the background of David's writing of this psalm. 1 Samuel 21 verse 10. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, they captured him. While he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Here's this experience in David's life. He is fleeing from Saul 
and really important to understand in 1 Samuel 16, so a few chapters before this, David was anointed king. That's no small thing, right? This is the one who is going to, to ascend to the throne of God. This is God's anointed. And so when oftentimes when we're reading the Psalms and the way that David speaks against his enemies, and, and it sometimes seems a little bit weird, a little bit aggressive, we need to understand the way that David processes all of these things, that the enemies of me, my enemies, are God's enemies. If they stand against me, they're standing against the purposes of God. So that's David's experience. He flees from Saul, the king of God's people, who is pursuing him, trying to kill him, trying to take him out. Of course, he flees, he gets away, and the first thing that happens is he is captured by these men who also want to kill him because of his reputation. This is David, the one we heard about, the great warrior, the one who has slain his tens of thousands. You could summarize David's experience is that the circumstances of life seem to be in direct conflict with God's stated purpose for me. The circumstances of my life seem to be in direct conflict with God's stated purpose for me. What was his stated purpose? To reign over his throne. To have a throne that would last forever. That descendants would come from him and he would have his son reigning on the throne forever. It would be a kingdom that would never die. So he's going through all of these circumstances and, of course, his own experiences. Well, because of this, it seems to directly come up against God's stated purpose for me. For you and me, we tend to and we can process things in a similar way. For oftentimes, the circumstances of our life seem to be in direct conflict with God's stated purpose for us. In Christ, what is God's stated purpose for us? Not only eternal life, but what we read here in question and answer 58. Not only living eternally, but eternal blessedness, eternal joy, eternal satisfaction. Psalm 16, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I fly, O Lord, to you. I think about the blessings that you give to me. In your presence there is fullness of joy. The satisfaction and joy that is known by God and his people. When circumstances of life seem to be in direct conflict with God's stated purpose for us, what is the remedy? What was David's remedy? David's remedy was trust in the face of fear. You need to understand that this is the way that the Bible tells us to, uh, one of the ways the Bible tells us to process these kinds of things. When life circumstances come right up against God's ultimate stated purpose for you, what do you do? You trust. When I am afraid, I will trust in God. We see here the word of God is also a source of trust. In God, whose word I praise. I trust in him. I trust in his word. And that trust is a remedy for fear. There's a mystery here to this. There's a spiritual reality that we need to grapple with. But we trust in God. And that trust is a remedy for fear. Why? Because God does not lie. He does not lie. He cannot lie. If God has promised us something, it will come to pass. If he's promised us something, it will come to pass. I was a, when I was a younger lad, there was a, a Christian song on the radio that talked about 
uh, God and his promises and facts. So his promises are promises and facts are facts. So the, the message of that song is basically, God has promised to give me these things. He's promised to, the Lord Jesus has promised to come again. And it's a fact that God cannot lie. He's promised us these things and God cannot lie. Why is trust a remedy for fear? Because we take our refuge in the one who has promised us all these things, promised us to go with us in the midst of trial, to be with us, and he has promised us blessing on the other side of it. He never leaves us, he never forsakes us, and he is with us to carry us through to the other side. He will see us through and out of the danger. And one of the great realities about God, right? If a a fireman breaks into your house as it's burning down, he doesn't just sit there with you and make you feel nice that you have someone with you. No, he throws you over his shoulder and he takes you out to safety. That's what God does. Not only is he with us in the trial, he sees us through to blessedness. Our second main idea as we consider Psalm 56 is this. All who attack me are flesh, but my God is greater than flesh. All who attack me are flesh, but my God is greater than flesh. The end of verses 4 and 11 in Psalm 56 have this same phrase that kind of, it's been bullets in there, summarize well the, the over. The overarching message of the psalm. In God I trust, and I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Verse 11, the same thing. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The meaning here is that nothing can thwart God's purposes and that which he has promised his people. Nothing can stand against the purposes of God. He has declared it from eternity past. It will come to pass. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can force him off of the track of his purposes. And what have we been promised? We've been promised eternal life. We've been promised hope beyond the grave. So one of the things that the psalm impresses upon our minds is that it's futile to trust in man. It's futile, perhaps, we can think about what we talked about at the beginning, It's futile to trust in the kinds of technologies that are going to make life longer. It's futile to trust in the kinds of things that this world can produce to give you some sense of satisfaction. Ultimate satisfaction can only be found in God. Ultimate eternal life can only be found in God. It's futile to trust in anything other than the God of Scripture who gives you eternal life and who brings you into his blessedness. This is a really... A, a theme of scripture that comes up again and again and again. The futility of trusting in men. And the reason scripture does that is because this is a real problem for us. We tend to fear men rather than God. We tend to want to please men before we please God. Isaiah chapter 31 says this. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Think think about in our day and and the way that society is kind of functioning right now. The message of Isaiah 31 is 
there are going to be all kinds of people who go with the numbers, right? Where, where is the tide turning? Which way is the wind blowing? Go that way. There's always strength in numbers. There's strength to be found in these kinds of things. And God has said, I've declared to you what you are to do. I've commanded you. I've told you. And it's futile to trust in man. Verse 3 goes on to say in Isaiah 31, The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Trust in the God who is greater than flesh. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Isaiah chapter 2, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? God's saying, you need to, to rightly understand and comprehend the relationship between the creature and the creator. There is this gap between the two that we fail to often comprehend. The gap between God and man is so great. And here is this God who enters into covenant with his creatures. And he says, I want your trust. I want you to trust me. And I want you to find your hope and your refuge in me. Do so. Stop fearing man rather than God. Psalm 118. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. I love the way that that verse makes it very clear that when we, when we uh, see in God's word the command to take refuge in him, it's really a command to trust. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Why? Because God has a higher authority. Because God has a higher power than anything below. Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, right? That human beings are not everlasting. God is. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary like men do. His understanding is unsearchable. Other men, uh, other human beings, their understanding is searchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. The strongest of human beings will grow faint and grow weary, right? Young men. Strong men will fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. The trust in God because his authority is higher than all, and because God alone can deliver from death and grant everlasting life. Ultimately, the message of the hope of the gospel is fairly simple, isn't it? We read it in John chapter 20. The good news of the gospel isn't, it doesn't come from some philosophical syllogism. It doesn't come from some complex software programming. It comes from the fact that Jesus Christ, God and man, came to this earth, lived and died, and was raised again to new life. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Mary Magdalene, John, and Peter were there in the garden where his tomb was. Jesus revealed himself to many hundreds of witnesses who took that good news forth. There are many today who get caught up in a a web of philosophy and all kinds of studies of the mind. They convince themselves that the good news of Jesus Christ is really just an alternate reality that people 
make for themselves so that they can be comfortable with the reality of death. That's not true, is it? We know that God alone can deliver from death and grant everlasting life because he has shown it in his son. He commands faith. But we read in John 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so, beloved, that comes to us tonight as a confrontation. Confrontation of grace, perhaps. But do you believe? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he really was raised from the dead? Do you believe that that is your hope? Do you believe that God calls you to hold on to that truth and to be comforted by it? Our catechism says there's a comfort of the resurrection. And the comfort of the resurrection is that our bodies, which are created by God, will be brought into the fullest realization of what our bodies were made for. Our bodies weren't made for death. Our bodies weren't made for dying. And that's why when we go through that, realizing it, when we walk with others through the pain of death, and when we lose our loved ones, we know that there is something that is not right about it. That's not how we were created. The comfort of the resurrection is that God, who created our bodies, will bring our bodies into an eternal blessedness. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul likens it to a seed. Our bodies are laid in the ground. There's germination, the creation of God, and on the last day, we will be raised to new life, and we will be with him forever. The truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that though we fear death, it has already been defeated. Though we fear death, it has already been defeated. Do we fear death? Yes. Do we worry about these things? Yes. Do we not like facing them? Yes. But in Jesus Christ, death has already been defeated. And we know that we can have and experience that same blessedness. Richard Sibbs, great Puritan pastor, says, all things that we have are first in Christ and then in us. So look to the Savior and say, what are the blessings that Jesus Christ has? And when the scriptures say that by faith you are united to him, by faith you are co-heirs with him, you can be assured that whatever he has, you will have as well by faith in him. So since faith or since death has already been defeated in Christ, we can be assured of that. And though we do not want to die, Christ is waiting on the other side for us. That's the comfort of the resurrection. Our bodies will be brought into the fullest realization of what they were made to be. We were made to be in communion with God forever. We were made to, to worship him and to glorify him forever. And we will do that in perfection in the resurrection. And then lastly this, living in the comfort of the resurrection means free, loving obedience to the God who has delivered you from death. I will pay my vows to God. I will offer him thanksgiving. Why? Because he has delivered me from death. That was the cry of David's heart. This God delivers me from death. He's going to make me to, he was going to see me through to sit on the throne and to reign over his people. And when I sit on that throne, And when I am finally reigning and living as the king of God's people, I will render free, loving obedience to him. There's a reality there that uh, we already have and hold within us. 
That because we have faith in Christ, because we have been given the Spirit, we hold that guarantee of eternal life that God, just like we read in Psalm 56 for David, God has delivered us from death. He has given us new life. He has given us resurrection life. And so what are we to do? We are to render free, loving obedience to the God who has delivered us. Psalm 56. I am under vows to you, O God. I will present my thank offerings to you. Why? For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling that I may walk before God in the light of life. I love the way that that ends, the light of life, because, of course, Jesus says that very phrase, doesn't he, in John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. The light of life is following Jesus. Because following Jesus means that we're running after him who has already broken through death, the judgment of sin, has already been given new life, is already reigning in the heaven of heavens at the Father's right hand. And so we're walking with or after Jesus and we possess the light of life. Other places in the scriptures reason the same way. If God delivers us from death, we will praise him. We will serve him. We will give ourselves to him. Psalm 86. I will praise you, O Lord, my God. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me, and you have delivered me from the depths of the grave. If he gives you life, you serve him with that life. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Paul speaks of the Thessalonians who turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You serve the living God. Why? Because Jesus has delivered you from death. Hebrews chapter 2. One of the, the best passages that deals with this very question. Through death we read that Jesus destroys the one who has the power of the death Uh, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. God knows that human beings fear death. But in Jesus Christ, we are delivered from that fear. So we don't need to jealously guard our bodies. Uh, We don't need to be obsessed with trying to find the latest technology about life longevity or anything like that. I read about a, a... rock star you all would know his name if I mentioned him but every year he goes and he has every ounce of blood in his body like replenished he sort of cycles out and gets new blood just because there's this thought that it allows him to live kind of a rock star lifestyle and also have a long life mentioned Larry King earlier people want to be frozen the moment that they pass away we don't need to live with those kinds of fears jealously guarding what we have, what are we called to do? We are called to freely give ourselves in service to God and in service to others because he has delivered himself, he has delivered us from death. We talked about the light of life following Jesus. How did Jesus live? Jesus lived freely giving himself for others to be a sin sacrifice, to serve others. He who was rich became poor so that through his poverty, those who are poor might become rich. 
Death threatens to make fools of us all. It makes us want to preserve, to avoid using our life and our resources. Following Jesus means giving all that you have in fearless love. Why? Because of the confidence we have. As you, you trust God. One of the things you say, say about uh, Psalm 56 and David's life in general, he was confident because he trusted God. Give all that you have in fearless love because of the confidence that we have in knowing that we are already united to the one who allows us to walk in the light of life. There's comfort in the resurrection. There's comfort in everlasting life. Because of that, we can trust our God in the face of fear and freely serve him in loving obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for these wonderful, marvelous truths and press them upon our minds and our hearts that we might freely serve you in loving obedience. To you be the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's end by singing.